Well, people of God in Christ, each time we gather on the Lord's Day to worship God, we do so looking back on the week behind us and looking forward to the week that lies ahead. In this way, the Christian faith might be defined as a weekly religion. This is true in the Old Testament as well, with the weekly Sabbath commanded even from the beginning at creation, and the weekly Sabbath commanded in the law at Mount Sinai. Even from the beginning, God rested on the seventh day. The equation, if you will, goes like this, that man was made in the image of God on the sixth day, which is to say man was made to do as God does. And the first thing we see God doing is resting. God rested on the seventh day, thus calling man made in his image to rest like him on the seventh day of each week. As I said earlier, the Sabbath day was also codified in the law of God at Mount Sinai, It should not be missed that Sabbath observance was included even in the moral law at Sinai. In other words, Sabbath observance is no less important morally than honoring one's parents. Within the Ten Commandments, the the command not to work but to rest on the Sabbath day falls into the same category as not murdering, but to rest, uh, not murdering, but showing love and caring for one's neighbor. And so it goes, as we might compare the fourth commandment to each of the other of God's ten commandments. But then comes the fulfillment of Christ. All things, even the moral law, must be understood in light of Christ and his fulfillment of the law. And has Christ so fulfilled the fourth commandment? that we are no longer called to rest on the seventh day? The church has historically answered, no, Christ has not so fulfilled the fourth commandment that we no longer are called to rest on the seventh day. If anything, Christ has so fulfilled the fourth commandment that Sabbath observance should be far more than a requirement, but a privilege if it is given to us a blessing, a a weekly opportunity to rest and remember in joyful celebration the finished work of Christ, such that in the end, the degree to which we fail to see the significance of the Sabbath, now on the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection, to the degree of failure, so we come up short in anticipating, or I'm sorry, appreciating, what the salvation of Christ means to us. Even in the Old Testament, God called upon his people to call the Sabbath a delight. Not a burden, but a delight as a holy day unto the Lord. So each week we gather on this morning. We gather because Christ is risen. And we gather weekly to give thanks for the week that lies behind us, and to seek the blessing of God for the week that lies ahead. Even more, knowing our weakness, 
And knowing it, because we've had to come here confessing our sins before a holy God, but as we know our weaknesses and as we look to the week ahead, we do so um, crying out for God's strength uh, for our living in the week to come. And we dedicate ourselves to living for Christ, being, being reminded that Christ lived and died for us. We purpose to live and to die for Him. Well, that's the logic. That's even the weekly logic of our Christian faith. And that's what we've been hearing from the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 6, now continuing in Romans 7, the logic of the Christian faith, specifically the logic of why we should desire and strive to live each week for Christ. Paul's first argument is to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Remember your baptism, Paul says, how it signifies that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's second argument for obedience is that we have been set free from sin through Christ. Our faith itself is the evidence. Having believed, a glorious freedom has has come to be found in us so that it makes no sense that we should go banging on the prison door wanting to be let back in. You are free, Paul assures us, your faith itself being the evidence. So serve Christ now. If you trust Christ to save you, then by all means, trust him to lead you and to guide you through your life. But now for a third argument. It's a new chapter in Romans, but the argument of Paul continues. Romans 6 begins, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then Romans in, in Romans 6.15, the same question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And the same answer, by no means. But with this further argument, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? But then for a third argument, starting in Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. To some degree, Paul is continuing both his arguments for obedience, first on the basis of death and life, and second on freedom, on slavery and freedom. And I I think what he is doing is sensing that his arguments might be taken the wrong way. He has already sought to clarify in verse 19, if you recall, that that yes, we are slaves to God and to righteousness by the work of Christ, but, but there really is no comparison. He writes, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, being redeemed, set free from the tyranny of the devil, yes, we, we are therefore owned by Christ, 
and slaves to righteousness. But it is not a slavery of oppression and tyranny. It was said last time that if you haven't already, it's time to switch jobs. Quit working for Satan. Literally, that is, that's what you are doing apart from the redemption of Christ, working for Satan. So quit working for Satan and start working for Christ, serving as his slave. But it's not the same slavery because Christ is the master who first gives his servants rest. Christ is the Savior who has done the work of salvation for us. Christ is the ruler who rules and governs for our good to guide us through life by his holy law. So here Paul is again qualifying and clarifying his previous arguments for obedience. And he uses the metaphor of marriage. Now, on one hand, it, it doesn't sound very complimentary toward marriage, does it? Here, marriage is being compared to death on one hand and to slavery on the other. And all that has, uh, uh, all that has to happen uh, is for one of them, the husband or the wife, to die and the other one comes to life and is free. Paul writes in verse 2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Well, it's a difficult metaphor because Paul starts out seeming to say that that we are the married woman set free by the death of her husband. But then in verse 4, he applies it like this. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, bear fruit for God. It's clear that Paul is still arguing for obedience. And his further argument is that obedience makes sense because of death, both Christ's death and our death with him. And that, I think, is why he's willing to change the metaphor halfway through Again, he starts out setting up the metaphor with us as the wife whose husband dies, setting us free. But then he switches to the idea that we have died. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. But either way, it still points us back to the death of Christ. That death, that was certainly his own death, But that was also our death as we died with him, as Paul says over and over again. But that was also the death, if you will, of Satan himself. We have pointed out before that that the way Jesus our Lord characterizes sin in John 8 
is not just that we are naughty, not just that we do bad things, not even just that we violate God's law and incur His wrath and judgment, but that you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, that's clearly the language of sonship. You are of the devil. Some English versions even say you belong to the devil. Either way, the idea is that we are offspring of the devil, children of Satan. There's no getting around Jesus' meaning in this, in this verse. The Pharisees wanted to say that they were the offspring of Abraham. While Jesus assured them that uh, while they may be Jewish by blood and, and genealogy, yet they are also and actually the offspring of Satan. You are of the devil. And so you belong to the evil one so far, so far as you are apart from the redemption of Christ. But the idea of marriage comes into this as well, because while our culture's understanding of marriage has, has changed greatly, some of it uh, for the better, yet in Jesus' day, a wife belonged to her husband. A wife was her husband's possession. So to be of the devil also conveyed the idea of, of even being married to the evil one. So how are we set free? Well, in our day, if a person is in a bad marriage, they just get a divorce. But not so fast in the day of the early church. The one sure way to be free of a bad marriage is by death. Either the one or the other of the marriage union must die. So was Paul referring to us as the wife who becomes free because her husband dies? Or is he referring to us as the wife who becomes free when she herself dies? Paul doesn't specify it. He simply uses marriage as a metaphor to describe where we are in sin. Married to sin and death until we are redeemed by Christ. And the striking thing is that when Paul says we have died within a union of marriage, he says that we have died to the law. Verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And this this is harsh language. This is... This is uh, uh, this is potentially scandalous language, especially for a Jewish audience. So much so that in the next passage, Paul will once again seek to clarify. But for now, Paul's point is that this is all the law will do for us. Let's hear it again. We've heard it before by Paul's own teaching in Romans. Let's hear it again that, that the only thing the law will do for us is to show us that we are enslaved, to show us that we are sinners, but as sinners that we are enslaved to sin and even to the evil one himself. But for now, Paul's point is that the 
the law points up the reality that as sinners, we, we are in a very bad marriage. But that we are freed from that marriage and that slavery by death. Death frees us from this marriage. We, uh, are we free from that marriage because we died or because our abusive husband died? And I think the answer is yes, both is Paul's meaning here. But then it's the matter of remarriage to Christ. Verse 4 again, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Not to be single, but to belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Again, we, sh- we shouldn't miss that, that what Paul is talking about is obedience in the Christian life. Uh, let's not get lost in the theology. But what is it that brings the bearing of fruit for God? It's the, it's the death of Christ and our death with him. We can also calculate how Christ put sin to death, how death itself was put to death, how Christ put Satan to death. But the first result is that we are redeemed. We are set free from a very bad marriage. Now to belong to Christ, even in the sense of marriage. So what does it mean to be married to Christ? It's a somewhat awkward metaphor when, uh, when taken individually and personally, especially if you're male. But God's word repeatedly, consistently, from Genesis to Revelation, characterizes the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church, as a marriage. And it's even a a second marriage, a a remarriage, that comes about by the death of Christ. Think here even of Hosea. The prophet who was told by God to to go take a prostitute as his wife. Uh, It was a picture of God's redemption of his people, that that while his people had had come to be united to another, God would buy her back. God would would redeem her in Christ so that she would belong to him again. Think here of Psalm 45, as, as we've read and given some focus to already. Uh, on one hand, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a marriage psalm uh, in which the marriage between the king and his bride is, is celebrated. Psalm 45 begins with praises to the king. He is the most handsome of, of all the sons of men. Grace is poured upon his lips, which I think is probably to say that he's, he's a good public speaker as a good king needs to be even more he is victorious in battle he's he's not only good to look at and to listen to but he is good for the nation against her enemies and he fights for justice not to establish his own evil reign as king and so he comes back from battle he returns victorious to take a wife and the rest of the psalm celebrates that marriage 
Think also of the vision of John at the end of Revelation. Uh, What does the end of time look like? What will heaven be? But a marriage supper. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Guess what? We're right back to obedience, the righteous deeds of the saints. But just like in Romans 6 and 7, they are righteous deeds. It is an obedience that has been granted to her. This is Paul's argument, that obedience has already been granted to you. You have died and have risen with Christ. Your faith itself is the proof. So take up obedience. You have been set free from slavery. Your faith itself is the proof. So take up freedom as you serve Christ. But even more, you have been delivered from an abusive marriage. And you you now have a good and loving and victorious husband by his authority. He clothes you in his own righteousness. He takes you into his house to live in luxury and splendor. He is your Lord. He is your master. He is your husband. And this is how our passage finishes. The new way of the Spirit. Verse uh, 6 reads, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit is not freedom to cheat on our Lord and Master. We said this last time. The child in the home is not free to damage the house and be mean to his siblings. We are free, not free to sin, but free to serve. And as the new way of the Spirit is contrasted with the law, we must see that the church serves her husband without fear of condemnation. She may receive correction, maybe even a rebuke if needed, But he does not condemn her because he loves her. He has brought her into his palace. He has clothed her in his own robe of righteousness. She belongs to him by his own death and resurrection. How would he ever condemn her? Yes, she is called to serve her master Yes, she has duties and responsibilities. Yes, she will try and fail. But she belongs to the king as his wife. And her place is secure. Her status is decided by the king himself. Her situation is forever one of lavish blessing. She serves as the wife of the king in the new way of the Spirit. Our world is so mixed up when it comes to marriage. 
even in the church, I think we, we hardly understand it. But marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. He has come for her. He has returned from battle to marry her. He has suffered in battle for her. He has even died for her. Willingly laying down his life for her, and he has been raised again, and he has returned even from the grave, and he does so to take her now as his wife. And her place is one of enormous blessing, even eternal marriage bliss. If you think about it, why, why do we talk about marriage or marital bliss? Young couples in marriage might have a taste of it. Older couples might yet retain some of it. And, and why do we have this concept of happily ever after? Where does that come from? No one lives happily ever after. Because all face difficulty and disease and finally death. There is no happily ever after. I'm still waiting for the sequel to Cinderella, the rest of the story, where Cinderella and the prince have quarrels, where she begins to wonder if she made a mistake, because come to find out he's not always such a prince, or where the prince's eye begins to wander, knowing that he could have had any woman in his kingdom, and maybe he still could. The fairy tales of mankind are full of a kind of wistful, vaguely hopeful dream of perfection. But the reality is only found in Christ. The reality is only found in Christ as a husband to his people, the church. Only in Christ is there really marital bliss. Because there is certainly law in Christ's house. There are rules to be followed. There, are, there is daily service to be offered to the king. There are weekly duties and responsibilities. But we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We serve a king who has provided all things for us. We serve a king who has promised to love us forever. We serve a king who forgives us when we fail and when we fall. And one day soon, he will bring us into his eternal mansion as his bride in the end. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, that you do not give us a bare command to do and to don't, but that you provide our salvation and call us to obedience as you give us the reason and the life and the faith to obey. Forgive us for ever thinking to obey out of cold duty. Help us to obey 
out of the reality of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.